Welcome back to Corbett Report Eat Radio on the Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it's currently the 13th of September 2012. So for all of you stateside joining me on the 12th, thank you so much for joining me, and welcome to tomorrow. And tonight we're going to be continuing to talk about a subject that unfortunately continues to have too much relevance in our current world, and that is the ideology of globalism, which is in all of its various forms attempting to undermine our local ability to influence what's going on in the world and to subsume that in giant supranational organizations into which you and I have no input and which deem to be able to tell us what to do. There are many different aspects to this agenda, so tonight on the program to help us break it down, we're going to be talking to Carl Teichrib, the chief editor of ForcingChange.org. And uh, Forcing Change is a uh, an information and intelligence portal, and it's designed to document and analyze the religious, social, governance, and economic agendas, movements, and initiatives that are now radically shifting Western civilization. And Carl Teichrib himself has authored special reports and over 125 articles on globalization and its many subtopics. He's looked into many aspects of this, including the United Nations Millennium Fund, the UN Third World Urban Forum, Global Governments 2002, and many other global conferences. So, Carl, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us tonight. James, it's a pleasure to be with you. Excellent. Well, I understand you're based out of my home and native land of Canada, and I've uh, told the audience a little bit about Forcing Change, but perhaps you can tell us a little more about the organization and your role in it. All right. Forcing Change is meant to be a quarter, pardon me, a, uh, a monthly uh, publication dedicated to helping my readers and, and everybody else around who may have access into this uh, information source, understand what is taking place in terms of of global economic issues, uh, the political side, uh, social and religious trends that are taking place. And and James, right up front, the material that that we look at and how we deal with it, it's pretty intensive. It's all documented. Uh, we we are not really big on uh, on just giving out sound bites or presenting uh, opinion pieces. We want material our material to be to be conducted in such a way that people will use it as a resource. That people will be able to go back to it uh, years down the road and access the material, take a look at the documentation, follow up with their own research, follow up with their own. Uh, with their own studies, and then from that point on be able to help them better comprehend the shifts and the trends taking place in our day and age, Re- recognizing, James, that globalization is uh, is a long process. This is not something that just happened yesterday. It's been in play for generations. And so uh, we look at, at the whole idea of forcing change as as trying to understand those historical forces and trends that are changing society today and will impact our world tomorrow. And we are a, uh, and I'll just be very upfront with my biases, uh, I embrace a Christian worldview, I am pro-liberty versus politically imposed equality, I am pro-individualistic versus consensus collectivism, and I'm pro-free market versus the uh, idea of uh of a top-down, imposed, uh, government, socialized type of, of system. So those are my biases up front. And, uh, yeah, every every month we come out with a new report or a series of articles that, that wrestle through some aspect of what we've just been talking about. 
Well, I think our biases will mesh well then, because it sounds like we're very much on the same page. And, of course, we are uh, opposed to this globalist agenda, which is seeking to bring in so many of those socialist measures of control and to institutionalize them in these big supranational organizations. So let's take a breather. We're coming up against our first break. But when we come back, we'll start talking with Carl Teichrib of ForcingChange.org about some of these issues in more depth and some of the research that he's conducted into them. So don't touch that dial. We will be right back after this break. James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we're talking to Carl Teichrib of ForcingChange.org, talking about globalism and the many inroads that it is making into our society, trying to transition us off into a socialist collectivist future. And we are going to be talking tonight about what that agenda looks like and what it will look like if it is implemented and how we can best divert from that course. So a very interesting conversation to be had with Carl Teichrib, once again, of ForcingChange.org. So, Carl, I had the chance to talk uh, to catch you on a different radio program recently where you were talking about your attendance at a recent meeting of the World Federalist Movement. And perhaps we can start there as it pr- provides perhaps a window into the, the, the globalist agenda more generally. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what the World Federalist Movement is and what you encountered when you attended its meeting this summer. Well, sure. Uh, the World Federalist Movement is a long-time, long-standing organization whose goal is the establishment of international law, world peace, world security, what they would call world justice. And it's always been framed in the idea of global governance and world government in particular. And what's interesting, James, about this organization is it's been around for 65 years as a, as a structural entity. Many of the early individuals who were part of the World Federalist Movement as it began after World War II were also men and women who had some input into the creation of the United Nations. This is a group that, especially in the 40s and 50s, really had a lot of pull and and was making real inroads into this idea of creating a, a federated world government after the ashes of World War II would simmer down. And so... This is the, the backdrop of this organization. It, it, it was birthed out of the ashes of, of conflict and recognizes that with, uh, with World War I, you saw the rise of the League of Nations. With World War II, you witnessed the birth of the United Nations. What will it take now to bring us about to the final step, the final stage, this idea of a federated world government? And so for 65 years, James, this group has been looking at what this looks like, working towards its uh, fruition in some way, shape, or form. And uh, they have had some measured success. The International Criminal Court likely would not be in existence today if it hadn't been for the the tireless work the World Federalist Community did from about 1994 on, uh, primarily through their executive director, William Pace, who headed up the uh, the International Criminal Court Coalition. 
and uh, played not not just a, a a large role. He played a, a monumental role in in ensuring that the ICC uh, was birthed. The other one of the other uh, you could say victories for for the rural federalist community was the adoption of the responsibility to protect doctrine, which was used last year by NATO and the United Nations when they invaded Libya. This idea that if a, a national country doesn't have the ability or is involved with uh, the the, um, uh, the the abuses of human rights against their own civilians, then it's up to the international community to step in and take responsibility and, if necessary, actually put troops on the ground in order to ensure that those human right, rights abuses cease. And, and so, again, James, this wouldn't be such a big deal. This organization wouldn't be e- even really necessarily on my radar, per se, if it wasn't successful and if it hadn't already had a certain measure of, of credibility and authenticity and has already had a lot of influence within the idea of globalization. These guys, in essence, are the forefathers of today's globalization movement, except from the perspective of, of a politically, democratically elected, uh, world federated system. That's the, that's the key that they wanna, that they wanna turn. That's the, the concept. This is gonna be a democratically elected global government. And so, I had the opportunity this summer to attend their 65th, uh, their 65th, uh, anniversary, so to speak. It was the, the International Congress that is held once every four to five years and, uh, be able to listen in on what, uh, what the World Federalist community is now looking forward to. Well, you're going to have to give us the details of what you heard there because I have no doubt that there were some interesting discussions to be had. Well, you know, I guess one of the big things that people need to ask, especially I know that you're a Canadian as well, uh, why Winnipeg, which is actually where the the Congress was held. Uh, This organization, when they have their international congresses, typically are held in world cities, uh, Tokyo, London, um, Oslo, New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco. Why Winnipeg? I mean, why? I'm from Manitoba. Um, and Winnipeg is my capital city, and even to a Canadian, Winnipeg would ne- would not be considered a world city by any stretch of the imagination. Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, sure, but Winnipeg? But it is the geographical center of the continent, and it has its occult architecture legislative building. Well, it sure does. Actually, there's a lot going on in Winnipeg, including the Canadian Human Rights Museum, which is uh, being constructed right now and has this incredible... Babylonian stylish uh, ziggurat uh, type structure uh, that is now being erected, uh, complete eventually with with a, a tower of enlightenment or illumination, something to that effect. This idea of of a unifying experience around human rights. So yeah, Winnipeg is quite interesting this in in this respect. But the reason is actually re- revolves around a personality, and that is the international president of the World Federalist World Federalist Movement. And that's Lloyd Axworthy. For most Canadians, that would be a bit of a wake-up call. It should be a wake-up call. Lloyd Axworthy in the 1990s uh, was a Minister of Foreign Affairs, which would be equivalent to uh, Secretary of State in the U.S., and uh, was actually Canada's ambassador to the United Nations for for a, a good chunk of time as well. 
uh, Lloyd Axworthy has been a, a very major player in Canadian politics for actually a number of years already. And so when I found out it was happening in Winnipeg, uh, it just made sense. That's his home. That's where he is the president of the University of Winnipeg. Uh, and then after that, I found out that there are other actual uh, uh, fairly significant players within the World Federalist community who also come from Manitoba as well, including uh, Bill Blakey, who is the former Speaker of the House of Commons uh, in, in Ottawa, uh, and uh, James Christie, who was the, the chairperson for the World Federalist Movement, and he is, uh, is very involved at the University of Winnipeg, too. So here it is, right in my backyard. I have to go. I've got to check it out. And uh, I was very fortunate to be able to do so. Probably, James, the things that really came out uh, in, in, this, in, in this event that struck me was that now that they see uh, how to go about creating some of these structures, like the International Criminal Court, the move will be towards creating other similar structures. One of them, one of the ideas that came forward was the creation of an international environmental court where they would uh, uh, set up a system similar to the ICC, except here it would be about uh, nailing people, so to speak, who have committed some grave environmental sin or some grave environmental uh, catastrophe. And, and, and then they would bring them to an international court uh, that would have the environment and, and planetary concerns on the agenda. Um, it, it, when I heard that, it kind of struck me as, as okay, uh, we're really looking here at this point to look for all kinds of ways of, of building up an authoritative style system. Uh, this is this can, can really go down some real dangerous roads, in, including the idea of responsibility to protect. In fact, Lloyd Axworthy said we need to we need to broaden it, we need to unpackage it. Because at this point, the, the doctrine is too narrow. Uh, it's about countries who have uh, violated their own c- civilian human rights. Well, now we need to open it up, broaden it, including issues like the environment, uh, poverty. Those are some of the ideas that, that he was throwing around. And at that point of, of, of this event, of course, it's just talk. This is what they're discussing. But I, I sat there, James, I was shaking my head going, you know, this opens up Pandora's box in so many ways. Uh, and, and basically, it boils down to if you oppose uh, globalization or the United Nations or whatever the agenda that, that the UN is putting forward, you run the risk of violating this new global norm and thereby may incur the wrath of the international community per se. Now, obviously, at a local level, you and, my, and you and me and the average person on the street, it probably won't affect us. But it definitely will affect our decision makers, and uh, it will affect them maybe in ways that that we we really wouldn't necessarily uh, uh, even even consider until after the fact. Basically, we end up bowing down to an international authority. That's what it boils down to, James. Unfortunately, so, and uh, you've uh, certainly outlined some interesting Canadian figures that are involved in all this. For the the American listeners out there, we can point to people like uh, Walter Cronkite and Hillary Clinton and others who have spoken for or even been part of the organization. 
with, I think, Walter Cronkite famously remarking that uh, he is a avowed globalist, and if that makes him sitting at the right hand of Satan, then he's happy to be there, or something to that effect. Some pretty bizarre and remarkable statements that have been made at this World Federalist Association and its uh, various meetings. So um, there's a lot to, to bite off and chew on there, and uh, I think... We also have to to explain and break down what why this agenda is so concerning, why, why we should be concerned about it. But once again, we're coming up against another break, so let's take another breather. Once again, talking to Carl Teichrib of ForcingChange.org. I hope you'll go there to check out some of that work and hopefully become a member. And if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, the phone lines are open, 1-800-313-9443. 1-800-313-9443. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we are talking to Carl Teichrib of ForcingChange.org. And we're talking about the globalist agenda and all of the things that go along with that agenda. So let's continue where we were leaving off there on the last break, Carl. You were talking about what you saw and experienced at the World Federalist Association meeting there in Winnipeg. And you're talking about some of the things that this movement has been responsible for, including being instrumental in setting up the International Criminal Court and getting the responsibility to protect doctrine passed at the United Nations. But let's talk about why this is something that we should be concerned about, because I'm sure my audience will probably have a good grasp on this already, but there will be people out there who might be hearing about this type of organization for the first time thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Uh, It sounds so good. If you have a crazy madman like Colonel Gaddafi murdering his own citizens, then we should step in and and try to get him. And and what's wrong with an international criminal court? It's a a good way of bringing war criminals and others to justice. So what is... Is the, uh, what is the disturbing aspect of this, and why is it something that we should be resisting? Well, number one, uh, we need to recognize that these are only stopgap measures to something that is larger. And, in fact, the World Federalist community recognizes that as well. They recognize that these are bricks that are being put in the wall towards a, a, the, the building of a larger edifice. And that larger edifice is a federated form of world government. Uh, so, the, number one, the motive. The motive is not just simply to to stop a crazy man. It's not just simply to, to bring justice to bear. In terms of, of both the International Criminal Court and R2P, the idea is here what we are doing is solidifying international law and solidifying new international norms that ensures that we have some global authority uh, that that has to be developed eventually in order to actually structurally manage these new norms and new systems that we are seeing uh, put into play, such as the ICC and, of course, responsibility to protect, or an international environmental court, or the other idea that, that came about at this particular meeting was the creation of a United Nations-based world parliament, uh, the idea of a United Nations-based uh, rapid reaction military force, those kinds of ideas. So already right off the bat, James, it's not just about the ICC. It's not just about stopping crazy people. 
there already is something else happening with this. There's already a goal to it. The other side to this, uh, to, to the coin here, in a sense that that is also troubling, is that right now we see these structures as they are. But the hope and the aspiration is that these structures will grow in size and intensity and purpose. And so you already are starting to see what, what you would call the idea of, of over-government, so to speak, uh, this idea of, uh, of power begetting power. Uh, we're not just satisfied at this level. We want to ratchet it up a notch or two. Uh, there's always, it's always a progressive movement towards something bigger, towards something more powerful, towards something more authoritative, so to speak. And so already at that level, this is problematic. It's not that I'm opposed, and heavens, I, I don't think anybody's opposed to stopping genocide. It's not that you're opposed to, to, uh, stopping a madman from, from harming his own citizens. Uh, at the same time, there needs to be a recognition that there's something else going on here. There's something bigger at play. And and people really need to wake up to the fact that, that yes, we are actually putting those structures in place that move us towards this idea of global management. And, and that it really, James, is what it's all about. It's a management issue. Uh, a couple of the times that, during the discussions that we had, uh, the, the idea or the flavoring came out on different occasions that what we're doing here is we're putting the skeletal structure together right now. We're in the process of bringing these pieces together so that when the next time we have a world crisis, a, a, an earth-shattering crisis, be it an economic crisis or be it a, a conflict, we now will be able to offer the world um, something that will that will move us towards global peace, international law, World government, uh, taking it one step past the United Nations, recognizing that now we have the ability to, to, in essence, show the world, give the world the solutions that they need to, to make sure that we never see any of these types of horrors happen again. Uh, there's real problems with all of this. And one of the other things that, that kind of struck myself as well was, here we're talking about world peace and developing world peace and needing world peace, and at the same time, realizing that what, what will really bring about uh, a federated form of world government will probably be war or conflict or some type of calamity. And so there's almost like a, you could call it a desire, uh, a twisted desire, a secret desire. Uh, and, I, and personally, I believe that many of the people involved in the, world, in the world federalist movement have good motives, good intentions. And yet at the same time, there was this paradox, James. You talk about world peace. You talk about uh, a secure global system, and yet at the same time, you recognize that, that in order for that to happen, you really need to have war. You really need to have some type of, of a global fear-inducing event that would force men and women to accept this ultimate answer. That's, that's, that's exactly right, and such an important point, and it goes back to things that we've been hearing about for decades from various insiders like Norman Dodd and others researching into the Carnegie Corporation's uh, founding documents and how they were debating in their board meetings about how best to move society, and they decided that war was the best way to do that. And lo and behold, a few years later, the uh, U.S. was being steered into World War One. and uh, absolutely, a time and again, we find that out of war come all of these League of Nations and United Nations and various bodies that presume to be able to subsume all of our sovereignty into their 
big, unwieldy bureaucratic organizations. A lot to talk about. Let's take another short break. All right, friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight on the program, we are talking to Carl Teichrib of ForcingChange.org, and we're talking about the globalist agenda and the various ways that it's being enacted through the world federalist movement and various other aspects of this agenda and other organizations that seem to form a type of interlocking grid. And, uh, Carl, earlier in the program, you brought up the, um, the idea of sustainable development and the environmental agenda that feeds into this. Perhaps we can start talking about how specifically this feeds into the agenda and what types of things we're looking at in the potential future if they start to really enact this agenda um, in, in the way that they want to. Carl, are you there? Oh, it looks like we may have, Carl may have dropped, so we will uh, we will try to get him back up on the air. Just hold on one moment while we do that. But uh, while we are waiting to get him back on the air, I would once again urge people to go to forcingchange.org. I think it is a great resource for people uh, from what I've seen so far. And as I say, I did uh, hear uh, Carl on another program recently, and he was uh, quite, quite good at that. So... Uh, so let's uh, let's just hold on one second while I <laughs> do this manually. Unfortunately, I have to do this behind the scenes, but uh, there is no behind the scenes here. We're live on air. So, all right, hold on one second, folks. And perhaps if, if someone on the board can play some music, I will get this sorted out behind the scenes. Okay, sorry about the inconvenience. We did have uh, Carl drop there, but we have him back on the phone line, so now we can continue the conversation. So, <laughs> all right, Carl, let's let's try to see if we can get this going. Okay, so we're talking about the environmental agenda and how that plays into this broader global agenda. Yes. Uh, where I really kind of got a sense of this was uh, when I stumbled upon a document uh, from 1990 from a Winnipeg event. And the event was was actually a, a provincial government-sponsored conference uh, entitled World Environment, Energy, and Economic Conference. 
And the, uh, the theme, the official theme was sustainable development strategies and the new world order. Um, kind of, kind of in your face in a sense. But what really struck me was chapter two of their document. Now, I understand this is not necessarily a world federalist uh, event, that's for sure. They had nothing to do with it, per se. But it, what, what is striking here is the similarity of, of the idea that we need to have some type of, of uh, a world management system. We need some type of a structure that would allow, uh, allow us to, to have governance over the planet, even including environmental issues. And so Chapter 2 of this particular report was entitled Toward a Global Green Constitution. And I'll just quickly read you a, a very brief uh, quote, and, and you'll have a sense of, of where this is going. Here's the quote. The issues are not about if a global politics is necessary. The question is how do we achieve binding agreements in law, complete with effective programs for applying sanctions against noncompliance that would oblige each nation, regardless of size, to abide by a set of principles that are required to guarantee the survival of life on this earth. Perhaps we will find that there is no other alternative to a system of rigid controls that some would equate to a police state. Unfortunately, in order to save the planet from biocide, there have to be very powerful constraints from doing the wrong things. The constraints must transcend national boundaries, be world around, and enforceable. And here's the next section of this quote. It's very telling as well. Enforcement agencies would need the power to act without being invited by the offending nation. Therefore, there needs to be an agency that is acceptable to all nation states on the planet. We can probably accept the fact that there will always be one or more nations that will not go along, but there must be effective sanctions in place. If sanctions do not work, then physical occupation and the installation of a world trusteeship would be imposed upon the offending nations, unquote. Physical uh, occupation, that's, uh, that's quite disturbing. That is. Considering this is 1990, this was one of those uh, early, early pre-conferences before the 1992 Earth Summit that took place, and, and this conference was actually was, was hosted uh, specifically to, to try to generate some of the ideas and, and thoughts that they believed was necessary for a global sustainable development strategy. Uh, and, and this is one of the one of the ideas that came out of it. And again, of course, it didn't happen. But the very fact, James, that this is the direction that we're that we're talking about, that this is what we're contemplating, uh, that that it would be equated to a police state, and that if you offend, you will be occupied. I I, I read this stuff and go, okay, this is the more extreme side of the of of the, of the world. Uh, government movement, and maybe maybe there is a, a basis of that. I, I know I've talked to many people who who have not had, uh, who would not go down this road, so to speak. They're they're more about this idea of let's do this uh, in peace, and it is all about uh, a harmony, uh, almost like a, a kind of a kumbaya sensation. But really, when you scratch the surface, and you don't have to scratch very deep, you end up running into this type of language on many occasions historically and in a contemporary sense. Uh, probably probably one of the most one of the most damning statements came from uh, Bertrand Russell in his book The Future of Science when he was talking about the idea of 
of the need for a world government. And, and this is what he said on page 34. I believe that, owing to men's folly, a world government will only be established by force and will therefore be at first cruel and despotic. But I believe that it is necessary for the preservation of a scientific civilization and that, if once realized, it will gradually give rise to the other conditions of a tolerable existence. Oh, so, sorry, guys. Uh, we don't have to. We, we we just have to do this for your best interest. So we'll, yes, we'll put the gun to your head, but don't worry about it too much. It's it's for the best. No, thank you. I mean, you know, we have had our our experiments in massive collective government. Uh, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, Mao's China. Uh, we have had those experiments. We know what happens, even if the intentions of some of the underlings were, were honorable in some respect, uh, the, the edifice became a monster. It, the, the utopian dream turned into a bloody utopian nightmare. Um, and this is probably one of the most, most damaging aspects of this idea of let's have a global political authority. There is no check and balance once that organization or once that entity has ultimate power in their hands. Sovereignty at that point doesn't exist. It becomes, uh, it, it, it becomes the benchmark of that global entity. And there would be no competitive countries to run to. At least now, uh, if, if my country becomes despotic, there are other countries around that I could flee to. You could say the competitive equals or, or, or those who have uh, some, some type of draw that I would be able to find freedom in. In a globalized system, where do you go? Where do you run? How do you keep that entity from becoming despotic, assuming that it, doesn't be, that it isn't despotic to begin with? And these are all questions that, that I know I've wrestled a little bit with some people in the World Federalist community over coffee breaks, uh, over breakfast, and there really isn't a good answer. Democracy, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't help. Uh, Adolf Hitler, who despised democracy, leveraged democracy to put, put himself into power. So democracy isn't a fail-safe measure. Uh, the idea that this is going to be federated with a constitution doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to, to, uh, to ensure safety, liberty of freedom. Not at all. We have all kinds of examples of countries that have federated constitutional systems that have gone down some pretty dark roads or are going down some dark roads right now. Uh, there really is no check and balance system when it comes to the idea of, of an all-powerful uh, world government, be it federated or be it otherwise. There really isn't. And one of the things that I find interesting about this agenda is that on the one hand, you have the environmental wing that's arguing basically for a uh, what they call a post-industrial society and basically de taking out the, the industrial capacity of the world because it's supposedly harming the environment. But on the other side, you have these uh, techno-utopians of the transhumanist ilk that I know that you've talked about in the past 
who are basically promoting a type of techno-utopia that we can transition into where people can merge with machines and eventually we'll all be living in sort of a global Borg hive mind, which sounds straight out of science fiction if it wasn't for the fact that there are entire societies out there that are dedicated to promoting that agenda, which I think is also a part of this globalist agenda because it also feeds into that collectivist ideal. Uh, What what do you think about the techno-utopians out there? I have had some some experience in in discussing transhumanism. Um, <laughs> wow, there are so many variations of, of techno utopianism, but really it, it all stems from from again an, an older progressive idea uh, that the world can be managed, that society can be shaped and can be managed properly by those experts who know best. Whether whether it be uh, in terms of economics or even in terms of, let's say, social design and culture. And this is something that, that I've ran into, uh, situations I've ran into when I've kind of bounced around a little bit with some of the younger generation uh, of those people who, who uphold the transhumanist ideal. Um, and most of them are, are younger. Most of them are, are techno-geeks, so to speak. Uh, and I find that relatively few have any historical context that they're basing their ideas on. It sounds good now. The gadgetry is there now. We've unlocked the, the, the secrets of DNA. Uh, we are right up there in terms of, of technological advancement. But transhumanism is an old idea. It goes all the way back to Huxley. It goes back before Huxley. In fact, you can even find, find some of these same teachings and, and, and ideals and aspirations all the way back into the late 1800s with, a, with the um, beginnings of the Theosophical Society. Uh, the idea of transhumanism is an old idea. There's nothing new about it except the gadgetry that goes with it. And it, again, is based around the idea of a technocracy. We need experts to manage, experts to, to bend and shape society the way we see society needing to go. And in terms of the techno, techno-utopians, uh, it's, it's a technological uh, aspiration, a, te- a techno-dream, so to speak. But the, realistically, James, it, it all boils down to the same thing, management. It's a management issue. And uh, the World Federalists, it's a management issue. Uh, when you go all the way through the history of this movement, movement, it is always about management. That is the essence, actually, James, of socialism. Socialism isn't necessarily about helping the poor. Socialism isn't necessarily about even redistributing the uh, re- redistribution of wealth, though that is that is by far the, the biggest building block that, that we that we use when it comes to understanding socialism. But even that is couched in something more basic, more core, and that is the idea simply of management and efficiency. We know best. We will manage it properly the way we want to see it managed. Mm. And so this is how I, I kind of see where, where globalization is going. It's not necessarily about global governance, because governance implies administrative uh, measures that take place through a political process. Yes, some of that already is there. Some of that already is taking place and will take place. But I see it more about the idea of global management. All right. We're going to have to take another break, but we'll come back to wrap up tonight's program with Carl Teichrig of ForcingChange.org right after this. Turn it up! I want my bell. I want it. Kick 
the bills coming. Sweet green cash just dripping like honey. I'm a new kind of thug with the Washington buzz. Cause All right, friends, we are back here in the final few minutes of Corbett Report Radio for this Wednesday night edition of the broadcast. Once again, talking to Carl Tykrib of ForcingChange.org where you can go to find out more about these issues and to sign up for membership so that you can get the monthly report. So, Carl, we only have a couple of minutes here to wrap things up, and there's uh, just too much to possibly encapsulate in a one-hour conversation. So let's leave the last question to uh, one of my Twitter followers who tweeted in this question for us. Uh, she's asking, this is Leander Pearson, and she's asking, is this Agenda 21's local environment takeover, big takeover after the local takeover? talking about the Agenda 21 that we've talked about on this broadcast before, trying to take over basically at the local level. And uh, is that is that the thin edge of the wedge that's going to be used for a larger consolidation of that power once the Agenda 21 has been implemented at the municipal level? I, I would tend to agree. Uh, I tend to agree for, for a number of reasons. Uh, and, and Agenda 21 definitely is, is, a, is an entity that has global reach. The purpose is for global change, for global management. Uh, just recently, there was the Rio Plus 20 event that took place in, in June, and it was a failure, but one thing that did come about through that meeting was this idea of let's transform the United Nations Environment Program into the United Nations Environment Agency, and that would be the agency then that would ensure that all other nations that had signed on to Agenda 21 would in essence comply with Agenda 21 principles and goals. Uh, it, it really is, uh, it really has been the hope of the globalist community that Agenda 21 would be that principle and that document that, that would consolidate environmental power within the hands of an international environmental regime of some shape or, or another. Okay, I think we're going to have to start wrapping up the conversation there. We only have a minute or two left. So why don't you tell people once again about ForcingChange.org and how they can sign up for membership and what they get once they do so. Absolutely, James. Uh, what we do is every month put out a, a, an edition that deals with globalization and its many subtopics, including uh, religious and economic issues as well. And uh, Go to forcingchange.org. We can we can sign up. Have you sign up for uh, one one issue or multiple issues, uh, quarterly, semi-annual, or an annual membership? And I, I would tell I tell people when you sign up, regardless of how long, go into the back issues. You have access to six years of reports and journals. I mean, there, it's a massive amount of material there. And clean the whole website out. Take it all. Put it on your computer. Send it out to friends. Use it as a, as a, as a point to, to be, begin discussion and, and study. And uh, take advantage of this. This is, this is an incredible resource. Uh, I've been doing this type of work now since, oh golly, in a major way, since about 1995. And uh, if I would have had the tools uh, through forcing change that, uh, you know, back then, oh, I would have saved myself years, literally years of work. Uh, the material there is for anybody who wants to research this thing in depth, and we need to start doing it. We need to start doing that, James. So we have a handle of all the various nuances uh, that, that this bigger picture takes. 
Absolutely. It is so important for people to start doing the research because absolutely it is important to understand how this agenda is being implemented and the ideology that's driving it. And that's why things like forcingchange.org and other resources out there have made that easier than ever before in human history. So I hope people are taking advantage of that. All right, Carl, we are up against the end of the program, so we're going to have to leave it there. Lots to talk about, but it's been a fascinating conversation. So thank you for your time tonight. Hey, and thank you. Sorry for all the technical glitches there, James. It happens. Uh, it happens all the time. It's no problem at all. All right. Thank you, Carl. Thank you all out there for listening in for tonight's edition of the broadcast. Uh, of course, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm going to be back with you 23 hours from now, same time, same channel. So I hope you'll be here with us to continue going over the news, behind the news, and headlines behind the headlines. So until then, thank you all for listening, and take care. Smile, it's the power.